Welcome, everyone, to the Feeling Bookish podcast. I'm Rob Fay in Beaverton, Oregon, with Roman Sivkin, uh, a bit south in Ventura, California, and our sound engineer across the Hawthorne Bridge in East Portland, Heston Hoffman. Um, and today, we're really, really happy we have a special guest, um, a returning guest, writer, translator, and Robert Musel scholar, Janice Grill. And uh, she is the author of The World is Metaphor in Robert Musel's The Man Without Qualities, translator of Robert Musel's Thought Flights, and translator of a brand new book, Theater Symptoms, Plays and Writings on Drama by Robert Musel. And it's published by Contramundum Press, um, available on their website, um, or you can order from your favorite independent bookshop. Uh, and we also remind folks that uh, Janice joined us uh, on uh, in the past on episode number 23, if you're counting, uh, to talk about uh, Musil's Man Without Qualities. Uh, we had a series of episodes there. So um, so please check that out. So we welcome Janice uh, to the podcast. And, um, you know, Janice, before we talk about your new book, um, you know, we have quite a few translators who who listen in. So perhaps we can start by just uh, maybe you can give our listeners a sense of, you know, why the German language and why Robert Musel? What what kind of got you started uh, in the, the Musel racket, so to speak? Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, the Musel racket, that's funny because um, one of my friends mentioned, my, my Musel racket friends mentioned to me that in Europe there really is a Musel racket. <laughs> and, you know, they, they use it, they have a phrase, something, you know, like that. But here, of course, it's uh, it's just a few of us. And I was fortunate enough to be exposed to museal and translating um, at the same time, really, in graduate school when um, Burton Pike was my professor. And he was, at that time, actually working on his translation of the, the posthumous papers of The Man Without Qualities. And I got to hear him, you know, read at a lecture a sort of a fresh passage that he had just, you know, just translated from the book. And um, so that was what got me into it. And, you know, he also was very influential in showing me the way that translation could be really close reading, a way to really read Mm. deeply. Mm. And we had this fantastic class that was um, literary interpretation class, a literary analysis class, where every week we were given a passage, just one page from a different work of German writing and had to, one, translate it, but Actually, I'm going to say to translate it, one, you know, really analyze it and look at the kind of words that were used, the kind of images, the kind of uh, rhythm, syntax, and sort of, you know, analyze all those things. And it just, it really was a object lesson in what translating can mean in terms of deep reading. Mm. Mm. You know, you, you spoke a little bit about translating um, Musil uh, in our previous podcast. Um, but, I, you know, in your introduction uh, to theater symptoms, you talk about uh, the particular challenges with Musil in terms of um, the German language, and you used a phrase I love called suspended idea juggling. Um, <laughs> and and you, you point out a, a particular word that is really untranslatable uh, into English, but is very important in Musil's work, uh, the word Geist. And so perhaps you can uh, talk a little bit about that word and, and how it's important for us to think about larger themes with his work in general in these plays. 
Sure. I mean, it is yeah, one of the most important words for Mizzou in a way. Um, it, it um so you know there people have talked about this many many times all tra- all german translators have to deal with the word geist and it you know it has many meanings from spirit to mind to um to culture um to uh intelligence or intellect i mean i'm 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 working on a on a, a translation now another musical translation where you know the word comes up over and over again and you know sometimes it's you want to translate it as the intellectual. Sometimes you want to translate it as, you know, spirit, as in spirit of the times, or, um, you know, the. It, but for music, what it, what it, why it's so important uh, is sort of at the crux of why this book is so important is that it's an idea of what art, in what way art is a means to living a more authentic, you could say, a more spiritual, a more intellectually alive sort of life. And so, but what's important is that it's not um, in in any way strictly spiritual in the sense of religious, which, you know, we might, we might take that meaning from spirit and that, that is contained in it. I mean, a geistlicher, a geistlicher is a a priest. Um, um, But it's also about spirit in the sense of, um, as as opposed to matter materiality and that it's it's something that is um and I actually have a fantastic passage about it that I wanted wanted to uh read about that but mm. I could I could read it right now but that that's that um the things that are not quantifiable in a sense but um the cultural life of human beings um the things that they really care about um but here, I I don't know. Could I, could I just read a little please, bit? Just please, jump in. It's from it's from um, one of his essays on um, theater. Um, so he's comparing the illustrative illustrative kinds of plays with um, what he calls creative theater, which is the kind of theater that he wants. And he says the illustrative is compared to the challenge of a creative theater, one that reflects the fact that we are actually made of spirit. So there was Geist. Do not fear. We can still eat lobsters, conduct politics, and do everything else that is human. We should do this. And as far as I am concerned, one can conceive of this spirit as materialistically as one wants. But we do not want to deny that the most meaningful moments are those wherein we are enlivened by some mysterious thought that carries us beyond ourselves and into the vastness of the universal I admit that I don't know how to express this, since all of these words, thoughts, spirit, idea, have been abused and have earned thereby a bad name. Nevertheless, we know how to differentiate quite clearly between whether we are doing something in our lives in response to an internal spur or not. And I'll just stop there, but I think that gives you some idea of what spirit can mean. Yeah. Um, And why it's so important. That I I also glommed on. It's... uh... The, the, so they bought, I love the fact that he's just it's funny. You can still eat lobster and, and be spiritual. Yeah, right. <laughs> that, that materiality. And the fact that he's mm-hmm. just, uh, you know, he has that uh, where if you really want to be truly rational, you got to take it all the way and include the irrational in your world conception, right? It's, exactly. it's kind of this, exactly. this uber rational. If you really want to be so analytical and so materialistic, you have to include spirit because it's part of our world, whether we like it or not. 
Yeah. yeah I, I mean, I, go ahead, Janice. No, no, you, you go ahead, please. <laughs> no, I, 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 you know, it, that passage, uh, it, it gives me flashbacks in a good way to reading The Man Without Qualities, right? These dense, rich paragraphs where you, you feel like you could, you could, you know, break them down forever. But it, mm-hmm. it also made me think of that passage, um, you know, this, this, uh, uh, conflict or this, 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 um, ongoing debate in Europe that, that is always part of the culture is essentially, you know, the Protestant Reformation and you have, you know, Calvinism, uh, uh versus, uh, you know, Catholicism and, and this, this understanding of, um, you know, human nature, is it, is it, uh, inherently degenerate, you know, and, mm-hmm. and, and requires God to redeem it you know, the way that a, perhaps a Calvinist would view it or, or a Roman Catholic view where, you know, we have a fallen nature, but it is, um, you know, largely oriented toward good. And, and particularly the lobster thing makes me think of, again, the relationship to the body where a, a Calvinist, and Calvin, if I'm not mistaken, was a, a native of Vienna, um, or he was, a, no, Geneva, but he was uh, in, in that neck of the woods. And, and that, you know, somehow anything with the body is, is, antithetical to the spirit, right? Which, which say a, a Catholic would be a bit more comfortable with, you know, you drink wine at the mass and, you know, alcohol is certainly uh, a favorite of many Catholic priests. Um, so, so that's what occurs to me when I hear that. I think there's so much there. Yeah. And I think, you know, you make a good point there in reference to this understanding of w- what spirit means to Museal and why somebody who you know, writes about perversion, <laughs> you know, what, what people would call perversion often, you know, and obviously is a sensualist and, um, you know, uh, flirts with the, with crime and, you know, uh, all sorts of blasphemy would, why it wouldn't be contradictory for him to care about spirit. Yeah. Um, in the tradition of, <clears throat> of a sort of, you know, mystical, criminality, but that, that the spirit is not about adhering to a particular dogma, certainly not. It's about, you know, feeling alive and um, inspired in, you know, with breath um, and not, um, so the greatest crime is to be, um, you know, a dull and deadened. and mm, um, Static. Mm. Yeah, mm. single, Static, single dude, mono-eyed. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's this whole thing about illustrative versus the creative theater, right? And he's got an axe to grind. I mean, he's, uh, you know, and aesthetically, he's got an aesthetic approach that's very clear, yeah. though he keeps on developing it um, incessantly, right? I mean, some of these uh, theater criti- critical writings are really um, almost like aesthetic statements. Um, yeah. And they're quite quite clear. I mean, they're very. He, he, even though he keeps repeating things from various angles, as he is wont to do, being Musil, um, the, the the picture that emerges is is again just very crystal clear. You know, the the utopia of the next step. Uh, you just want to keep moving, creative aliveness and presence that there's not that is not um, conditioned by previous you know rigid modes of thought. Um, so uh, it's really, can you talk a little bit more about his like critical approach to the theater? And I mean, he was involved in the, he was heavily involved in, in, in critical, you know, in writing critically on the theater and, and the whole th- scene in the twenties, uh, was so lively and so rich and he was right in the middle of it. At one point he wrote something crazy, like 50 reviews and a bunch of months or something like that. Yeah, it is really um, sometimes three a week at one point. I mean, so and it's, writing it's them right of, after, sometimes right after the plays. Ended, right. Just, right. 
<laughs> yeah, and this so this is a musical that you know most of us don't really know about. I mean, I didn't really realize that, but yeah, he was very active and um and and you know why? And I guess you know, and I don't I don't want to um deny the specificity of theater in all this this question about art um in general. But you know, some there's something about theater that um, really embodies a lot of these these questions almost directly. It becomes this sort of uh, you know a touch point or hot hot point for flashpoint for all for the intersection of many of the things that that interest him. And I mean, I the, well, the whole idea says, of, sort of creating. Right? He says what? that sometimes he writes about the theater, he writes something about specific about the theater, and then, and then he says things like, you know, this actually could be applied to any art form. Uh, exactly. And he just jumps and gives, gives you a, a larger perspective and then narrows down to, again, to something specific that he was talking about the theater. Yeah, and I mean, this morning I was, you know, sort of thinking about what is this all about, and it really just comes down to the all the reviews and the plays themselves are a... Together, there are, you know, sort of an advocacy for and a definition of a certain kind of art that is a means to living a certain kind of life um, that can really only be or best be defined or illustrated through uh, our, an artistic experience, um, the irreducible artistic experience. And so in a certain sense, the stage becomes this sort of um, realm of ritual play, or it should be, you mm -hmm. know, for, you know, his, his complaint, his constant complaint that instead of it being that it's, you know, just tropes and traditions and, you know, uh, conventions, but it should be this place where, you know, you have an experience of that is shattering, that is enlivening, that makes you question things. Um, and you know that that makes me um, curious. In a, in a, if we step back for a second, what you know, what place did theater have in 1920s Vienna? I mean, today, you know, uh, mm -hmm. theater is pretty obscure. I don't even think obscure describes how obscure it is. Um, yeah, and, no, and, sure. and, and you know, uh, Joyce uh, wrote a play uh, uh, as well that people often forget exiles. So, so where was it vis-a-vis, -vis, you know, poetry, the novel, uh, music, uh, at, at the time? Um, well, in one of the, in, in one of the, um, theater symptoms, um, platform essays, he, you know, he notes that Vienna calls itself a theater city. And I mean, you know, it still is a lot more than it is than, you know, New York is a theater city or, you know, it's still a part of their culture in a way that it isn't um, for us. And yet, I'm, you know, it, it, he also is tracing the decline that he already sees of the role of theater in, you know, in some of these essays in, in another one of the, uh, maybe the same one of those, those theater symptoms, um, mm -hmm. critical mm -hmm. pieces where he, you know, shows that it used to be, um, you know, it came out of a social the social needs of the aristocracy in a sense. And it was the, the place where people went to be, to see and be seen in a sense. And, you know, how that is changed because of democracy and access for everyone. And, and what that means, it's, it's, it's pretty, it's a pretty subtle, interesting um, passage, but where he sort of asks, well, can we, can theater still mean the same thing that it used to? And if it doesn't, then what does it mean? And, um, 
has it been co-opted so much by, you know, the culture industry, um, by um, the need to entertain and to please and to shock and to, you know, to sell Mm -hmm. that it no longer, you know, but, but it was um, even then I'd say, you know, in the twenties, you know, much more vivid, important, significant um, genre than we can, we can really imagine today. Well, with with that in mind, I mean, I'm just thinking as far as art, you know, the best of art really has to be almost revolutionary, but not in that old sense of overthrowing an order, but just, Mm-hmm. Uh, poking, poking, poking folks in the eye, so to speak, making them, you know, it's, it has to be subversive to some degree to be, to be deep uh, or to, to really make a difference in, you know, in the readers. I don't know exactly what I'm talking about, but you know what I mean? Uh, mm-hmm. So it's got like with, with, um, with the utopians. And I really want to talk about this play because I've, I really enjoyed it. Uh, there was some, can you tell us a little bit about this, this, this weird performance of it and this, this pushback that Musil got ab- about this play that the people misunderstood it? Um, yeah, well, um, the play text itself is very long. Um, and you know, it, it might take, if you were going to perform the whole thing as it is, it probably would take about four hours, people have said. Um, so when it came out, it was um, read to great acclaim and, you know, it even won the, the Kleist Prize, which is a very prestigious award. But nobody wanted to perform it. You know, there was moments when you know, this person wanted to and that person wanted to and, you know, nothing happened. And then years later, um, Suddenly, this guy, Joe Lehrman, who was a con man, basically, um, who had, you know, various names and was involved in all sorts of shady, shady things, um, decided to put it on in a very abridged, you know, cut up version. And um, Musil found out about it too late to stop it. And it, you know, it was performed in Vienna and in Berlin, I think. Okay. So he didn't see it, and um, but other people did, and it got you know terrible reviews. And then he, you know, he wrote this you know little response to those reviews, the you know the the, the Schwammer scandal, the, the utopian scandal, um, to sort of refute it. You know, mm. but um, it and was there. Was there ever? Did he? Did he live to see a performance no. that he approved of? No. 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 I actually saw it performed myself in um, Berlin, and I, I guess it must have been years ago. It must have been very shortened, but I thought it was fantastic. I thought it worked very well. Um, but I can see, you know, you can see that it's not. Um, it's filled with a lot of talking. Well, yes, it's got. And, it's got. Um, you know, the old essayism is in there. Musil's um, aesthetic of of thinking through things uh, philosophically, psychologically. Uh, yep. In in his art, I mean, it's 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 evident there. But unlike the man without qualities, this one has an end. <laughs> it has an it's, ending. It has like, an yeah, end. Right. That's sort of. I mean, the ending's pretty ambiguous. So. It is ambiguous. Like I mean, it wouldn't be it wouldn't be Musil if it wasn't ambiguous. Uh, it wouldn't right. be great art. Um, yep. <laughs> but, but uh, again, it does have an end, which is kind of interesting for Musil, who's, um, did he, mm-hmm. did he, uh, continue to revise it? Did he continue to work on it or did he just kind of leave it and say, this is it? No, I thought, I think he, you know, he was happy with it. Yeah. 
very happy with it. I mean, it was one of his, you know, his favorite. Well, I consider it a major work, right? I mean, he considers mm-hmm. it a, right along as uh, the Man Without Qualities. Um, yep. In fact, I think it's. Uh, I think for people, it's not. It's not a cheat sheet by any means. I, I think the Man Without Qualities must be read by anybody who's interested in Musil at all. But uh, this play gives uh, gives us many of the same themes, many of the same yeah. sort of dynamics, the the tensions, uh, the themes um, that are the, the, that obsessed him for the rest of his life. So there's a little bit of a snapshot of Musil here that you can get in what about a hundred pages as opposed to a thousand pages. I think um, so too. It's a it's a distillation of some of the the main main important ideas. Even though it's early, right? It's early, relatively speaking, mm-hmm. in his career. 1921. Mm-hmm. Was what, in his early 30s at the 1921. time? I'm sorry, I'm just thinking, how old was he? Oh, uh, how old was he? Well, 1880, 20... So, 40. 41. Yeah, so he was a young man still, relatively speaking, right? Yeah, yeah, still sort of dealing with his adolescent uh, ghosts, I guess. Right, right. <laughs> Well, I love this, the, the, his aesthetic of surprise, you know, the, the, this, this thing that keeps, that keeps the, this, this um, tension going. Uh, it made me think of, of uh, maybe we talked about this before with Eugenius, I'm not sure, the, the Claude Shannon, the, the, the father of information theory, uh, where he places surprise as kind of the most important thing about information because mm. it's, it's, it's the thing that gives you information. You know, things like, you know, roses are red, violets are blue. You think this will rhyme, but it ain't gonna. It's a surprise. <laughs> it's a, it gives you something new, a different kind of thing. And so Musil seems to be uh, not in a vulgar way of just like, here, surprise, suddenly something totally different. But in a very um, conscious way, seems to be um, creating these tensions that are just so, as a reader, I find them del- delicious. They're like, just keep <laughs> you reading. It's like going down a hill and you want to just keep going down because he just, he just, he has these masterful ways of just get, getting you to wherever he's trying to say, but then he turns a corner and says it yet in a different way as he is mm. wanted to do. And I just love that. You know, he, he says, I've been called an unraveler, but mm-hmm. I struggle to achieve synthesis. And the struggle is visible, not in a bad way, you know, but in a very aesthetically pleasing way. Uh, it's just kind of weird, I guess, a struggle. Um, being dramatized here in the in the utopians uh and he did a wonderful job just wonderful i really enjoyed reading this play i'm this so glad i was wondering how you would how you would well your translation it. is great i mean it's like you said the subjunctive mode of thought in german is is almost impossible to translate to this very uber practical uh, english language mm. but you do a wonderful job and i love the notes uh some of the puns that you explain, uh, you know, his his nemesis is it Wild Wildgans, the the playwright, yeah, right? Wild Goose. <laughs> um, Goose, yeah. <laughs> uh, he plays around with some of the, the the puns, and you you explicate it, so it's great for for people who don't speak you know, German or can't read the stuff. But can you tell a little bit more about your struggle? Because I know you struggled. You you've you've you know I've you've mentioned at, uh, other other places that you struggled with this book. Uh, not just with the translation, I think, we're just just getting out into the world. Can you talk a little bit about that? Hmm. Well, no, I've, I've, maybe I've forgotten it. Just, you know, when people give birth, they, they don't remember how painful it was. But uh, it, I think you know, the hardest part was that there's a lot of material and I had to choose, you know, what to put in, what to leave out. And also for me, particularly, that this is not a realm that I am expert in the theater of the 20s. I, you know, I, I don't really know that much about that. So I had to, you know, really do a lot of research around w- the things that he was referring, the things that were, um, 
you know, very familiar to him and his audience that were not familiar to me and also probably not to most of my audience or our audience. So that, that involved, you know, a good deal of research. Um, but, and then, you know, the sentences, I mean, I, you know, um, Robert was talking about the translation problems earlier, you know, earlier, the the sentences are deeply challenging. Um, and, uh, yeah, and indeed that, that thought juggling, the things that German can do with language and the things that Musial can do with German language are not things that are easily done in English. Um, you really have to, to you really have to re restructure, but you don't want to lose that sense of openness and danger, mm-hmm. <laughs> the mm-hmm. adventure um, of of the language where you're you know up in the air because you really are, and you and Musial is keeping you up in the air not only syntactically but you know, thematically and ideologically. Right, right. So you want to keep that open, and then you know the fact that he he will talk about something sort of value-free um, for a good long time, even though he has very strong opinions. That That's that's hard to do, deal with in terms of translation, in terms of kind of keeping that um, non-conscripted um, mm. tendency, but also making it lean just to the, you know, right direction. Right, right. Uh, it's, it's like... So yeah, I mean, I guess it was... I'm just always reminded of, of Flann O'Brien's quip about German, you know, waiting for the German verb is the ultimate thrill. So this this <laughs> this, this waiting, this waiting that you see these this I mean, I'm just imagining because I, I don't know German, but I can I can picture Musel having, you know, the Musel sentence sort of this lifting these possibilities in the within the sentence and holding them up while he's exploring things underneath and maybe on the sides. And this whole sentence keeps rolling, rolling and rolling. And then it ends you know, in the, you know, with a verb of some sort of conclusion. But English, <laughs> English doesn't seem to be able to, to do that, right? To, to hold that up. Right. And he might not even, makes me think he might not even know what he's going to say at the end. Oh. I love that. I mean, the verb is not, I mean, that's a, that's a thing though, but the verb's not always at the end. And the, you know, no, I what, understand. Yeah. what they're just, just to say, but what, what they're really are, are a, an abundance of clauses. Mm. Mm-hmm. So many clauses, you know, and they're all related, but in what I'm, I'm studying ancient Greek right now. And it's actually, you know, it's more like that than German that, you know, there are all these parts that um, are not, it's not always clear how they how they fit together. Um, so it's it's interesting, but it's maybe a way of maybe it's a way of it really is a way of looking at the world. And I, I wanted to talk about. I started reading this book after this came out. That is so so to me so relevant to me about um, Greek tragedy, um, so relevant to this project, uh, this Musil book that I wish I'd read it before. But um, you know, you were talking about what theater should do that it should you know be shattering and whatnot and you know we think of that as such a modern a modern um task but this fantastic book by uh, Martha Nussbaum um the fragility of goodness which is um the, the subtitle is luck and ethics in greek tragedy and philosophy oh. and it's oh. such a great book but you know what she does is she shows how greek tragedy was this realm that contained um tragic conflicts that are unresolvable and this this um, this was an incredible you know ethical philosophical 
object lesson in in the fragility of goodness that you know you don't always know what is right and what is wrong to do or you often are put in situations where to choose one thing is to, you know, lose many goods of the other Mm -hmm. thing. And that, Mm -hmm. you know, there are always these competing claims. And so I don't know. It's just, it's just the way she talks about it throws a lot of light on, on the whole, the realms that Musial is talking about. And I mean, maybe to make, to make the link, she, she, she says that, um, Hegel saw in, um, Greek tragedy, he, he thought that it was telling the audience that you can resolve and that you should resolve the conflicts, the tragic conflicts that you could make, you know, the resolution. But this film says, no, that's not what it's saying at all. In fact, it's saying, you know, we always are looking, we're looking two ways, at least two ways, maybe three ways at mm competing incommensurate values and so but the link is that she has a fantastic um epigraph to um from wittgenstein at the beginning of one of the of her chapter on antigone that is so new zealand and that it also it really really discusses connects back to this idea of art as a why is art so important because it's this realm of the irreducible so wittgenstein says that talks about um the difficulty The difficulty is not that of finding the solution, but rather that of recognizing as the solution something that looks as if it were only preliminary to it. Mm. And then he goes on and says, this is connected um, with with our wrongly expecting an explanation, whereas the solution of the difficulty is a description. And so, you know, when I think of it, it's like we can't, there is no explanation. There's no final, there's no final solution. There's no way to reconcile. Um, but art is a description of this state of uh, sort of, you know, shimmering tension. Mm-hmm. Well, that's why that's why Musil is so, uh, I think, so attractive to me, somebody who's kind of philosophically minded anyway. Um, mm-hmm. You have this continual try. He just tries and tries and tries and tries, letting you know that there's no end in sight, really, and that the, right. it's the trying that's that is really important. It was almost like a like a via negativa, like a, like, a, like saying mm. this is like this this is not it, this is not it. And by doing that, he defines mm. what you can't directly look at. By sort of saying this is not it, this is not it, but then you know you, you have this kind of picture, negative picture of what's of what he's trying to say that you can't really point to directly. Yeah, I don't know if that's uh, that, no, that yeah, and I mean you know sense. he often talks about it as being you know going out to the edge beyond which reason no longer you know beyond which science and reason no longer suffice. I mean he you know we know he was a scientist, he was very logical, he's very intelligent, but he, as you said earlier, he. he if you're going to really look at the, the true nature of things, you have to acknowledge that there is a point beyond which um, we don't know many things and, you know, wherein, you know, there are, there are things that we cannot control. I mean, I guess that's also the a big theme in the, uh, the Nussbaum book is that, you know, we are, we humans are always trying to control um, mm. naturally to ward off danger. And that's why luck, luck is this, you know, this, this constant luck as which is also good bad luck um it's always there things that will come in and and so 
you know, philosophical systems and political systems have been set up, you know, in the in the attempt to somehow make everything safe and secure and, you know, frozen. But when you do this, you lose, you know, a good good part of what makes life life and what makes us human. Right, right. With a with a with a capital H. I mean, that's. It seems yeah. to be for me. I mean, I I think lately, especially with the pandemic and everything, and and the way our society seems to be going, uh, <clears throat> the the technology seems to be pushing the human really off the map. <laughs> mm-hmm. And and I I think I think it's so important for us to uh, to remind ourselves that we are not the technology that we've produced. Uh, it seems like we sometimes forget that 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 humans are more important than algorithms, or not more important, but humans made mm-hmm. algorithms. We 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 are in control here in a sense without being in control. I don't know exactly how to put this, but we seem to mm. be forgetting team human here against this this the machine. You know? <laughs> well, I mean, we're it's all... in control until the technology, you know, is right. in control and, of us. It's, 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 um, back to, to unions, I love Stadter, uh, the, the detective. Oh, he's fantastic. He's what so a great funny, character, right? A great character, right? He, he's got his firm Newton, Galileo, and Stadter. Because <laughs> right. he wants, yeah. he's Mr. Science, you know, he's, he's, he said, oh, he's, interestingly, he says that his firm, his detective firm would have been called Argus in a previous era. And I, yeah. you know, Argus Panoptis, you know, the, the guy, the primordial giant with a hundred eyes. Um, right. he's like rejecting, it's not a myth where I'm, I'm here for, you know, science, Newton, I don't want to be, you know, relying on myths anymore. I want to be scientific. Um, and it, it actually reminded me when he's talking about technology and the, uh, Argus with a hundred eyes looking at it. You know, everything is always being, being sort of taken with a, some sort of a, a vision of, of this panopticon, you know, this, everybody's, you know, seems to be wanting to be out in the light of, of you know, being seen by everybody else. And it's just, it's just, it's, yeah. I don't know. And everything, is, everything is quantifiable. Everything is, you know, weighable. Everything can be predicted. I mean, it also, you know, connects to, you know, Dostoevsky, the, you know, the underground man, which was really important to Musil, of course, and Dostoevsky is very important to him, but that this idea that, you know, that um, the underground man is always is, is raving about that, you know, the idea that, you know, people think that they can, you know, just, you know, play on us like a, you know, organ, like pull out the stops and they know everything's predictable. And, you know, uh, but he doesn't want that kind of, you know, that kind of life where everything is predictable and measurable. He wants to assert that he has a free will and that he's human, even if that means, you know, tearing down the crystal palace. Right. right, right. Well, it goes back to Nietzsche, of course. You know, the whole becoming, uh, not not being mm-hmm. static. Uh, this, yeah. this, this always, you know, uh, also Ernst Mach. You know, everything is a function of everything else. Um, this kind of primordial soup that we 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 think this some sort of a mythical thing, but it's it's here with us now. <laughs> you know, we just put weird uh, squiggles on it uh, of lines of thought and logic and and that kind of stuff. But it's the primordial chaos is alive and well. Yeah. Um, Janice, I, I want to uh, jump in and, and ask you um, about, you know, the novelist as critic. And that's one of the things that is really fascinating mm. for me with this book. And, um, you know, I, I grew up reading John Updike in The New Yorker, and it fascinated mm-hmm. me how this this very 
very good novelist, was also a, a fantastic uh, critic. And so today, it's probably unlikely that, you know, our our well-known novelists are running off to the theater to do th theater mm. critiques. But, um, you know, this is the first time that these reviews have uh, have been published in English, which I think we should really point out and is really significant um, and important that you've done this. And so what so for for novelists today, uh, artists coming across these uh, pieces of criticism, what what can they learn uh, in their mm. own interaction with with novels and art today? Because I I have a few of my own ideas, but I'm really curious because I think there's a lot here. Yeah, well, I really want to hear yours, but I mean, I think he, there is some you know wonderful moments in these reviews where he talks about the sort of the mysterious processes of creation in a way that is really, um, I, I really uh, extraordinary. I, you know, he talks about how the artist has to be both, um, self and the not self and that, you that they, you know on the one hand there's the artist looking at the world as it is almost objectively as an eye you know just looking and then there's the the artist that is the artist themselves the character the self the will the will he uses that word a lot in this context of the individual particular eye that looks mm -hmm. at the world this this is and you know he makes it very clear that if that most artists only have one of those things. Either you're, you know, they're just objective looking at the world or they're all, all self and that you need to have both. Um, that's one thing. Um, the other thing that I think is important always is that even though you can have all these sort of laws and rules and, you know, um, aesthetic theories, none of them are absolute. Um, what really, really matters is that you're true to your, you know, to your own necessity as a, as an artist, that you are doing everything you do out of necessity um, and not thinking about it being like some other thing that existed before. Um, and, you know, that it's, that it's alive. Um, that's sort of his highest criteria on for, you know, for creative work. Um, but I'm not sure if that's what you were thinking about. I'd like to hear. Yeah, what you're I, well, way. no, that that's that's wonderful. I I, I guess um, you know what I'm what I kind of gleaned from these uh, uh, reviews, and I was astonished to see that uh, at one point he was writing three of these a week for a, a publication in Prague. I mean, that's mm -hmm. that's just extraordinary. Right. Um, so it shows you the. <laughs> you know, the commitment that he had to doing this in addition to his own creative work. Um, mm -hmm. I guess I, I really got the feeling that um, he is working out his own uh, mm -hmm. art through an analysis of these. And and I guess the value I might see for novelists in particular today is a lot of the reviews today are people only choose to review books that they approve of, right? Because mm -hmm. it's a very clubby atmosphere uh, in the publishing yeah. world. And so you don't see a lot of bad reviews. And um, I don't think you should trash somebody just to trash them. But um, mm -hmm. 
you know, Musil is very uh, tough on on some of these playwrights and very tough on actors. I suppose we could talk about that as well. But mm-hmm. I, I, I guess that's what I see is I think if if novelists, you know, uh, took on reviewing in a more profound way, um, you know, I, I wonder if it would help them think through mm. some of their own art. Yeah. No, I, I see what you mean. Yeah, that that, that the actual process of of um, critically writing about other work um, helps you think about, in the, in the same way that, you know, translating helps you think about sentences. Um, mm. it, you know, a review in a way is a translation of a, of, of a piece of work. And so you're, you're really thinking about what's going on here. And he does that. I mean, he really breaks it down. What is going on in this play? Why is this person doing this? Is it, is this supposed to be symbolic? Is it an allegory? Is this real? What are we supposed to be thinking here? And, you know, shows how it, you know, for him, it breaks down that it doesn't work in this case or that it works in this case. And one of the most beautiful things about Musil as a thinker, and I mean, you know, I would almost, you know, yeah, you could call him a critic and he calls himself a critic, but he's really a public intellectual in a way of the kind that they, you know, had in those days, like Thomas Mann and whatnot, but that yeah. he can talk about something that he hates, a writer that he thinks is just atrocious, but find something wonderful mm. there. Yep. And sometimes in a way, it's easier to find to see clear, more clearly um, in something that's not very good, a, a law or a, a question that, that, that is relevant for everything. And I guess, I mean, and, but also, and I wanted to add, while, while Robert, you were talking, I was thinking there was, there's another kind of important thematic that I think that um, contemporary writers might really want to think about, and that is the tension between naturalism and, you know, and other things. I mean, and yeah. he, you know, he pits naturalism against expressionism and impressionism, but the, you know, the, because, you know, his great love of the, uh, he, he, he didn't, he was very critical of expressionism, which is, which is an interesting aspect of this book. Um, but partially because it was just sort of so abstract and simplified, he felt that there were these sort of like dog, the dog, dog howling at the word howling at the moon, like love, greatness, you know, mm-hmm. beauty, and that it was sort of empty. But um, so, so far removed from naturalism. But then he also didn't want a naturalism that was just dull and banal. And so he wanted, in a sense, a naturalism that was the naturalism of heightened moments. Yeah, um, back to Could, spiritual, the highest spiritual pitch. So, you know, if you want to write about real life, why write about, you know, do you have to write about the dullest moments of real life? Or could you actually yeah. see that real life actually does contain these, you know, these higher um, could, moments? Could you define, it might be helpful there, there are like the three isms you just mentioned. And they, <laughs> they come up in the book. Can you just Uh-oh. give us a, a cheat sheet of <laughs> what, what those meant? to, to uh, cultural folks at the time might not be clear. Mm. I can try. Um, I mean, you know, naturalism is, you know, associated with sort of um, Ibsen and, and sort of this, uh, it's associated with a, a kind of um, sort of political tendency as well. Often, you know, showing people, you know, talked about like showing the dirty feet 
you know, going into the hovels of poor people. Instead of writing about, you know, kings and queens, you're writing about poor people. You're writing about, you know, they were very, a lot of, a lot of naturalist, um, you know, like Zola or, you know, naturalist novels mm-hmm. um, and plays as well are about, you know, people who have, you know, like prostitutes or, you know, alcoholism or, you know, people who have... Uh, inherited that was a big theme for naturalism you know you inherited these bad traits from you know the past so there's a certain kind of looking at the the dirty and the sordid and somehow this had a moral um was supposed to have a moral value um it's 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 sort of also what in a way oscar wilde was um reacting against mm-hmm. um caliban seeing his own face in the mirror or you know just um mm. So that's that's a you know but and then expressionism was associated with um revolutionary art um certainly you know marxism um an attempt to shock and shake up so you might think he'd be interested in that except that it's too for him much too simplistic and it's for him also too emotional it leaves out the mental part of the sentimental it leaves out the ideas and the thoughts and um so he had a real problem with that but it was it was very um imagistic um focused on um on um costume and um creative avant-garde stage design sort of these these little flashes fragments fragmentation as opposed to um ideas and language the kind of language that Musil loves um so he pits himself against expressionists expressionism but of course there are certain expressionist writers that he that he likes and or partially likes and the same is true for the naturalism the other the the moscow arts theater the which he loved he, he loved, loved. and they but they are associated more with the naturalism um they were um I, you know i didn't realize this i had to kind of you know dig in there but they were sort of pitted against the expressionists as because you know Stanislavski's idea is all about really being um getting into the feeling and the experience of the of the actor whereas the expressionists were also more um like types they weren't expressionist um characters were more types like the you know the maid the Right, and he was really against the virgin, the the you yeah, know, the poor man, the right, right. And Musil really doesn't. He has. He's very critical of that. He 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 wants to. He wants the particular along with the. Yeah, he doesn't want to easily recognize passions and characters. And yeah, it's funny you might the, the Russians when the Russians came to town. It's really hilarious because he writes that he went to. Uh, to a performance, and he he said it was one of the best performances he's mm. ever been to, and he didn't understand the word because he was in Russia. But I didn't understand a word. I it's just it's, it's fantastic. Yeah, but so yeah, what, what and was part he of that is seeing that he loved. I mean, I mean, we know what he was seeing, but you know, what do you what do you think made him so ecstatic about that? I think that it goes back to the sense of authenticity that he he feels that they're really embodied. The spirit is embodied, and that's you know that's the thing that you know he they they are there and you can see this if you see um um there are you know films that have the um 
some of the actors from the um, the Moscow Artist, Arts Theater in them, and you can see the expressions on their faces, the way they move. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> but again, yeah, it's, you I- know... Reminds me a little bit of Bulgakov, uh, the Master Margarita. He was also involved in the theater quite a bit, and of course, the Master mm-hmm. Margarita itself has a quite a few theatrical, you know, based scenes. Mm-hmm. Um, but he he was also very much embedded in that whole um, the, you know, the Moscow theater scene. So this kind of reminded me a little bit of of that of that approach. For some reason, I don't know why. <laughs> yeah, th- yeah, there's a there's a passage that I think is really related to what we're talking about, and he, as I mentioned before, I'm I'm struck by how how interested he was in actors. He really has mm-hmm. a lot to say about acting. Um, but he says um, he's he's kind of uh, denigrating this, I don't know, we'll call it overacting. He says the actor will use a role to invent a vehement simulacrum of life on the stage. He will be good, evil, sad, wild, heroic, envious, cruel, noble, all to a degree that his private life does not mm. avail him. Mm. He wants to be able to be effective, or as one says, in short, be in his element. And this is the really interesting part. But in life, we are precisely not good, but good intention. <laughs> not mm. evil, but crafty. And I, I I actually, you know, I disagree with Musel, which which probably is a very dangerous thing to do. <laughs> but I, you know, I you know, an example might be like Puccini's opera, La Bohème, or something like that, or even Kabuki in Japan. I, I, I actually feel it's that over-stylized mm-hmm, mm-hmm. intensity of, of the theatrical experience that is, that is necessary um, and that is cathartic and that is what we're most attracted to. And we, we understand uh, Madame a Butterfly doesn't depict naturalistic situations of, you know, a Japanese woman and some American uh, naval officer, but it, I, I think it's, it heightens the things that we do feel. So I, I almost wonder if that's a, a novelist speaking where I think in a novel, you can really explore these, mm. you know, understated uh, emotions. I'm, I'm curious how, how you feel about, about that, his observation. I think that's a very good point, but I also think that he, you know, he contradicts himself, um, as you know, he is vast and containing multitudes, he, you know, in, in, and that's why, you know, in the, like in the Russian cabaret, um, review, which is so wonderful, he talks about the, the dramatic importance of things becoming extra real of, um, of, of things being distilled in that way. So, I mean, I don't think that he's against, certainly not against abstraction um, and, you know, a heightening of outline around certain things, but he, as always, um, wants that abstraction and that metaphor to be um, actually a real, something that tells us more truth instead of less truth, if that makes sense. So that, mm-hmm. you know, if, you know, you're, you, you using a metaphor that of course is a, uh, single uh, distilled image for something that is, um, multifarious, you are always, as he points out elsewhere, cutting out things you're you're committing a crime against the truth you're doing you're doing what he says you shouldn't do in a sense in in that passage that you read you're distilling but to do so as he says 
brings, and this isn't a man without qualities, brings beauty and, you know, significance into life. So he, I think he probably would agree with you more than disagree with you. It's just that mm. when the actors and when the plays and these expressionist plays are, are mimicking these, these ideals that are actually kind of empty and hollow, um, you know, you feel that. Right. And, and I, I think in uh, um, his play, um, The Utopians, he he actually talks about how um, you can you can feel great passion and enthusiasm about something you don't actually believe. Yeah. Right? And, and that that really struck me. And, you know, frankly, I think I, you know, I work in the quote unquote corporate world. And I, and I think, you know, often people will seem very passionate about something. And I, I, I kind of know in a meeting or something, but I know privately they, they mm. don't really think the idea is a useful one or the, the, you know, the business direction. So it, but I, I think they feel enthusiastic. They almost will themselves into it, but um, mm. yeah. <laughs> uh, I wanted to ask you quickly, just because you guys men mentioned metaphors and metaphors being so, uh, so central to Musil's uh, mm -hmm. aesthetic. Uh, the Utopians as a play is not particularly heavy on metaphors. Mm, uh, it's true. Right? It's it's almost like an anomaly for Musil. Yeah, the language is pretty, you know, everyday. But there is that really powerful metaphor in the end about the, the carpet. The wow. patterns in the carpet is, is you know, massively important. Um, but you're right. It's it's kind of, even though, you know, the characters are very, very intelligent, um, they're, you know, they're, they're just talking normal. You know, they're just normal talking. Talk. And it's, again, I just want to... Make sure that people understand how funny there, there, oh, there's, there's, there's a lot of funny. funny. Even the just the description. The play is set in the, you know, the country house. Uh, uh, all the characters in the play are between 28 and 35 years old, with the exception of these two, the Miss Martins and Yosef. All the people mm -hmm. in the play are beautiful. However, one may imagine that. I mean, I love that. Mm -hmm. um, and also, yeah. Miss Martins has a kind <laughs> face that is reminiscent of a school. <laughs> satchel and a backside grown wide from long listening in the halls of wisdom <laughs> yeah yeah and, and you know it has this it's very you know in a way a very a play dealing with very serious themes but it has these comic characters i mean you know, you know the detective again and you mm -hmm. know miss mertens and well it lightens it kind of lightens it doesn't lighten the mood but it's it's um it, you know, he's trying to present a complete picture. So we were, we're laughing here. We're, 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 you know, trying to understand what's going on deeply here. But, um, but again, as I mean, early on, Miss Martin, Miss Merton says, you know, our, you know, this house, it's a revolt against what's good enough for the rest of the world. I think <laughs> right. Right, it's, it's a clue right early on that mm -hmm. this is, this is a Musil play. This is a Musil production here. <laughs> we're <laughs> going to go away from, from the rest of the world. What's good enough for the rest of the world. And we're going to do something extraordinary. And and yeah. display really manages it. It's quite wonderful. Oh, I mean, you know, you're reminding me that um, when you talk about humor, that one of the one of the few kind of uh, theatrical um, the theatrical theories of museal that has sort of bled over into regular museal theory and discussion that I used to hear about before I got into this is um, the um, review of Dr. Nock. Um, and it's um, by Jules, Jules Romain. And I think the, the idea that he puts forth there is a sort of theory of comedy, which is that, you know, um, normal comedy used to be that, you know, you make fun of society, but modern comedy is that we, you know, we make fun of 
ourselves as well. Um, and that you're, you're not sort of saying that, you know, that those, that thing is, is ridiculous, but we're, we're, you know, we're, we, we know, but rather everything in, in from a certain light is ridiculous and we're all implicated in it. Um, here, here. <laughs> I think you can, you can really see that in, you know, in the utopians where even though, you know, Thomas, is, you know, the big, smart intellectual who, you know, makes... It's it's a similar, same thing that happens to the man with the qualities that all the characters, even the, you know, supposedly very intelligent ones, have the characteristics or the possibility of being as foolish as all the other characters. And the foolish characters, you know, like Stoddard, also have characteristics that are... They say wise things as well. So. Yes, yes, it's 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 really again. It's not they're they're not easily recognized passions and characters uh, in this play, and that's what he was aiming for, and he achieved it for sure. Um, one um, thing that I think is, I'm sorry. No, no, please go ahead. I just wanted to say that one of Burton Pike's comments about the Utopians that I find very interesting is that um, Thomas, um, whereas Ulrich represents in a sense Musil himself, his intellectual side, Thomas actually represents Musil's emotional side. And huh. I think that's interesting. It, it, you can feel Thomas's struggle with the way he is, with the kind of hyper-intellectual, um, almost, you know, to use a contemporary term, Asperger sort of um, mm-hmm. rigidity about things. Um, Musil struggled with that. I think. And, you know, um, Thomas struggles with it too. He, you know, when he doesn't have the kind of emotional expression that, you know, that Maria wants when they're leaving, he doesn't give her what she wants in terms of, you know, the sort of expected, you know, and, but statement. he's aware of it as well. He's aware because he, he's, he almost yeah, exactly. throws her into Alison's ar- Anselm's arms. He's like, you know, go to him. I can't give you what you need. Yeah, so he knows, and it's not just that he's like so, you know, so superior in his intellectuality. He knows that it's something that, yeah, that he may, that he lacks in a sense, or that or that makes him, you know, makes it hard for him to be in the world. So we we um, we are kind of uh, creeping toward our ceiling yeah. here of time. It goes fast, but I, I did want to um, I wanted to give you a little bit of time, um, Janice, to talk about your your current slash uh future project uh we we know you didn't finish this book and uh you know retire so uh we want to hear about that but i i have one just very kind of like geeky publishing question um that i wanted to ask (laughs) you and that is i i noticed um that the uh the ministry let's see if i get this right that the yeah uh, yeah yeah the austrian ministry of education of arts and culture was a supporter um of the translation of, of the publication and that's really fascinating to me. I, I what is their yeah, well, involvement? They gave um, me a grant for um, this book. They also gave me a grant for Unions, the other, um, the second museum book that I did with Contramundum. The you know uh, Austria is gives us a much larger chunk of their budget to the arts than America does, and what, what a shock! The budget. Mm-hmm even includes, you know, giving money to, you know, American translators, it was, you know, something like 2000 euro, which is fantastic. I mean, it's more than I make on translations generally. So it's nice to have that little bit of uh, money for a 622 page, you know, book yeah. that I worked on for, you yeah. know, <laughs> a long time. But yeah, so that's, that's that. Um, and, you know, I do want to, um, 
you know, take a moment to thank um, Reiner and um, Contramundum Press and, and um, also Alessandro Segalini, who is an incredible typographer and book designer and uh, cultural historian. Um, they, you know, they worked so hard to get this right. And I've so far only found one mistake. I won't tell you where it is, but um, <laughs> it's incredible, you know, the amount of work these people do and the amount of work it takes to make a book of this size. Um, Painstaking. Oh, absolutely. And I, I wanted to mention before we go that the physicality of this book, the, the its its presence is so nice. I love holding it in my hands. The Utopians, when you start Aww. reading the Utopians, it's about right smack in the middle. And the book <laughs> right. opens without breaking the spine. It opens beautifully <laughs> and you hold it and it's just it's just some sort of a very aesthetically pleasing um, aspect of, of reading, uh, off, not on the screen, you know, an actual book. Um, I did you see the uh, the spine? The spine. Did you, did you see the joke on the spine? The Poirot, the 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 dots. Yep. Yep. Yes. That's yes. Out, yeah, Alessandro's. Uh, <laughs> we still don't know who who that no, character is. I right? think I still think you're right, but nobody wants to. Yeah, that knows. I read that knows gives him away. <laughs> Yeah, I, think so too. <laughs> I don't know, but it's a wonderful picture. You know, the photograph of it. Um, we can see Musil and his wife. Uh, the young Musil is very suave looking. Yeah, uh, again, something about this book. I love it. I Contramundum play, uh, Press. Thank you for doing this. I I urge people to actually get the physical copy. Forget the ebook, unless you really have to uh, get it. Well, but we don't uh, have an ebook, so we great, can't get great. Just get this book because you <laughs> want it on your shelves. You want it on your shelves. It's it's um. It's an important part of Musil. It's an important part of, uh, I think, anybody who's who's thinking through the 20th century in any kind of aesthetic, uh, writerly way. Uh, and again, the physicality of this book and the, and the, the the content. Forget. I mean, we we're just talking about for an hour about the contents, of course. But <sighs> the Utopians as a play, and there's a let's mention there's a, there's another play that's pretty funny as well. Vincennes, uh, yes. The Vincennes and the Mistress of Important Men. Um, it's just it's just a wonderful uh, physical object that I urge everybody to get because it's just uh, it's a pleasure to read. It really is here, to hold you here, here. Yeah. Thank so, you, uh, thank you. So, Janice, can you tell us uh, what's yeah. what's yes. coming for you? Yeah, yeah. So it's funny. I mean, I I'm working on a finishing a translation that I started um, ten years ago, um, and it is. Um, a really, really important book. It was important then. It's even more important now. It is, um, it is a book that's half written. It's called Robert Robert Musia Literature and Politics, and it is half of it is um, an, int- an incredible introduction by um, the Austrian uh, scholar Klaus Amann, who used to be um, the president of the um, Robert Musil Society in Klagenfurt, and he, he's an incredible. Um, historian literary historian particularly of you know works around the the holocaust and um world war 2 and it, and the second part of it is um Musil's own writings during the period of um world war 2 and the the anschluss with um of germany and austria and deals with the question of um of how to be an autonomous artist in the um, in realms of of pol- intense political polarity and ideological um, conscription, and um, some a few of the pieces in it were previously translated in this fantastic collection, um, Precision and Soul, which is um, Musil's um, essays and addresses translated by Burton Pike and David Luft um, in 1990. So that has a few of the um, 
the pieces that are in this Amon book as well. Um, but there are a lot of other pieces that are not in there. And um, they also, um, my translation is, is based on newly edited um, manuscripts or newly uh, back in 1990, um, um, not 1990, whenever that was, um, mm. And ten, ten, ten years ago, and, and uh, or so, maybe even fifteen by now. I'm not really sure, but um, oh, so there. So even the ones that have already been translated are are slightly different. But there's their aphorisms, their notes. Mizil struggling to understand what the role is of the artist, how to bear witness, um, how to maintain openness in a time of, of totalitarianism. And he, he talks a great deal about, you know, the different kinds of totalitarian, totalitarianisms. Mm, and, you wonderful. know, one of the dramatic aspects of it is, you know, is this address that um, he gave to the, um, in Paris at the um, anti-fascist conference yeah. in um, 1937. He, he was booed. He was booed. Yes. He was booed off the stage because yeah. he dared to, to, to point out that, um, that the Soviet um, totalitarianism was also a, uh, a threat, yeah. a threat to um, the autonomy of the artist. And, um, you know, Amon really beautifully um, shows what happened to those people, you know, harrowingly shows what happened to those people who booed him off the, off the stage, you know, in the, in the next, you know, five, 10 years that so many of them were, um, killed, um, imprisoned, um, divested of their, you know, their livelihoods. Um, and that, you know, Mizil, of course, was dead right. Um, when, uh, so, when can we expect to, to see that uh, uh, published? Sounds really timely, as you said. Yeah, um, pretty soon. I mean, I'm, okay. I'm, uh, I'm just, I, I guess, I, I'm not really sure what I don't know what Kantamundum's yeah. um, timetable is right now, but, but I'd it's say coming. I'll be it's coming. I'll be done in a couple months. So yeah, it's it's almost done yeah. because most of it was already done. But yep. I, I'm just having to um, retranslate a couple of a couple Wonderful. of parts and it really does sound timely. It 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 sounds reminiscent of a book that the uh, New York Review of Books publishing house is reissuing by Thomas Mann called Reflections of a Non Political Man, which right, is a book yeah. that that I want to check out. Um, so yeah. I don't know if there's any parallels there, but you know well, I haven't read it for a long time, so I, I should. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, uh, it's been wonderful again. Uh, we really appreciate it. This is your second time around again. Uh, episode twenty-three. You can also uh, hear. Well, I think Jeanine's when the next book, about, when the next book is out, I think we need to get Jenny's back. <laughs> absolutely, it's a uh, okay. It's ongoing, well, it's always uh, a, a pleasure. At first, I was thinking, you know, this morning, because there have been so many, there's a lot of publicity, you know, well, for me, relatively a lot of publicity about the theater symptoms. And I kind of felt like people, and people are going to be tired of this. There's nothing more to say. But then I, when I started thinking about what I, you know, I got excited again and excited about talking to you because it is, you know, like all great works of art, as Musil said, um, it's, you know, great works of art are um unfathomable you know they you, you yeah. you're never done talking about them so. absolutely it's alive it's alive all you have to do is pay attention i mean we we have so mm. many other things to pay attention to nowadays which is fine you know but then it's so nice to have Busel to come back to and and you know to prolong our sort of stay with him and <laughs> really i mean i think i i said something on a, in a tweet that you are you're 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 um 
continuing sort of Musil's uh, aesthetic DNA. And it really is <laughs> it's so important for us, like especially this new book you're working on, uh, Artists in you know, Political Times. Um, it's so important that uh, I just, I love the fact that you are transmitting this and it's not easy. It can't be easy. I know you, you know, struggle with this a little bit. Um, well, if anyone wants to send me chocolate or anything or whiskey, you know, I'm I'm happy to. to All right, folks, you heard, heard here. There it is. Well, thank you um, so much. So, it's such a pleasure to talk to you both, and thank you, Heston, back there, silently totally. holding he, us he up. Is. So, thank you, Heston, and, and we remind people that um, we were talking with Janice Grill. Her new book is Theater Symptoms, uh, Plays and Writings on Drama by Robert Musil, published by Contramundum Press and available uh, at contramundumpress.com or order from uh, your favorite bookshop. So thanks again, Janice. Uh, thank you, Mr. Roman Sivkin. Thank you, Heston Hoffman uh, as sound engineer. And uh, remember, you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and you can find our podcasts on all your favorite platforms, including Apple Podcasts. So thank you guys. Thank you.